us sentient beings, we, with a very sensitive nervous system, we are equipped with a consciousness that perceives, experiences, feels. We've got ears, eyes, mouth, a body, a mind with which we can see, feel, hear, taste, smell and think and all those experiences that we make, that in a way make up what we are, make up our life, they all, as we all experienced it over and over again, have a feeling tone. We sense, we experience them either as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither the one especially nor the other, but more neutral. And of course, very naturally, we prefer just having the pleasant ones and possibly, if we can, no unpleasant ones at all, if that would be possible. And this preference keeps us very busy all day long, trying to keep or to get a pleasant experience and trying to get rid or not getting at any time an unpleasant one. And of course, this is totally natural. We probably all agree to this endeavor. And at the same time, we also discover that we can't really control this. Although I remember some years ago, it's actually quite a long time ago, shortly after a plane crash in Switzerland, which uh, doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Luckily, I went, uh, I had to go and uh, book a flight in one uh, in our travel agencies. And a little bit with a smile on my face or uh, a little bit joking, I asked the employee, which whom I, I knew uh, since many years, whether she could make sure that my plane won't be landing on runway 28 that seemed to be a problem at that time. And after my trying to make this little joke, she replied with utmost seriousness, you know, that, oh, they have it under control now. <laughs> now, luckily, not too often with planes, but in general, in life, we discover that this is not so. And here we react often with frustration, fear, depression, anger, and maybe many more other painful reactions. Now the forces that move the world, our inner world, the outer world, wanting and not wanting wanting to have and not wanting to get rid of desire and aversion. On a small scale, these forces might look quite insignificant. On a broader scale, their dimensions are often disastrous, as we all know. 
And it would be naive to think that we can get rid of these forces rather quickly. But I think it's central and it's important to learn to understand them, to weaken them, not getting caught by them until, and that's our vision, that's our aim, they will have no more ground to even manifest. So tonight I would just look a little bit closer to these two forces of the wanting and the not wanting mind. Wanting, greed, holding on, attachment, grasping, desire, all part of this. Hafiz, the great Sufi master, writes in one of his texts, the mind is ever a tourist, wanting to touch and buy new things, then throw them into an already filled closet. How many pleasant feelings have we already enjoyed in our life? But isn't it amazing there is again and again a sense that something is missing no matter how many pleasant experiences we did have, as long as we are caught in desire, this sense of something is missing, is lacking, remains. Now greed, the wanting mind, this energy that creates unease, unrest, should not be confused with certain wholesome desires or visions or aspirations that we of course all have. For example, our desire or our aspiration to be free from suffering, for inner freedom, for peace, our desire to help and so forth. These are wholesome aims. But of course, even wholesome aspirations may sometimes at a certain point turn into unwholesome ones or grasping. I can take my, uh, in the beginning, wholesome vision or aspiration, for example, wanting to cultivate calm in my mind or insight. We can grasp it blindly, compare, judge, evaluate ourselves or the present experience with this goal that we have in our mind. And then we suffer terribly when we see that instead of calmness there is restlessness, unease, confusion instead of clarity and wisdom. And what I would also like to mention here, because there is often a misunderstanding when we talk about desire or wanting, it doesn't mean that we should get rid of pleasant experiences that we have or that we should no longer enjoy when there are pleasant experiences. In fact, we would then just be trapped in aversion, the opposite energy. In fact, even if we would try hard to only 
experience unpleasant situations in their states of mind and heart, we wouldn't succeed because as much as we do experience the unpleasant ones, we also experience pleasant ones on this feeling tone scale. That's just the way it is and how it changes. But rather here when we talk about this unwholesome state of, of, a, of, uh, of greed, of wanting, this painful energy, I think it is uh, quite well expressed in a traditional image that's often uh, used, namely that of a hungry ghost. Sometimes they're also painted on the Tibetan tankas. It's a being with a very, very long, very thin throat and a very, very tiny, small mouth and a huge belly. So it's very clear when we see that this being that it will never be able to get satisfied, this huge stomach, stomach or belly. And in a way, when we are caught in this state of wanting, of, of greed, it, it feels a little bit like that. There is a sense of, I still need something. We might have a lot, and still it's not enough. Now, often we believe that the only way to put an end to our desires is to fulfill them. But again, as we've all experienced many times, not long after our desire get fulfilled, the next one is waiting in line. And there's a kind of a poem, however you want to call it, the poems of uh, Wilhelm Busch, the German uh, writer, where uh, I think he talks about that. He uh, writes... What you have been longing for has come to you with ease. With triumph and joy you roar, now I'm finally at peace. Dear friend, please don't talk so loud, but restrain your tongue. Each wish, when fulfilled, brings forth its own flock of young. <laughs> So there are many areas where this wanting, this desire manifests in our life. One is in our appearance or concerning our body. For example, there's certain desire, maybe how we should look, how we would like to look, or we hold on to an image about ourselves how we do look, that we are somebody good-looking or not good-looking. There might be a desire for certain inner qualities, for more compassion, more concentration, equanimity, intelligence, or whatever. Holding on to an image about ourselves or others. You know, I'm an angry person, or I'm a shy person, I'm a boring person. I'm an entertaining person, clever or stupid or lovable or unworthy. And we do that also with others. K 
carrying these images and fixing people, putting them into a box. That's the way they are and they will ever be for the rest of their life. Sometimes this can go so far that we have a certain ideal of a person, of a child, of a partner. And this might be so strong that we almost miss the actual relationship or almost miss the actual person there because we are so much fixated on this image, how we want that person to be. Sometimes we can see it in our work or the roles we play, roles that we play that might be helpful at certain times. But if we are holding on to our roles, this often creates troubles, be it the role of a doctor, a teacher, a student, a manager. If we continue playing the teacher or the manager at home or with our friends, then we're in trouble. There is a desire for and a clinging to possessions that we have, desire for beauty, for aesthetics, needing to be around beautiful things only, and suffering greatly when things are ugly, not nice. Clinging to nationality, to culture, clinging to our past, how wonderful it was or how terrible it was. Clinging to views and opinions, a huge field of suffering if we don't recognize it. Or, of course, desire for meditation experiences, for calm, for concentration, for insights to manifest. We've read all these wonderful sense stories and, you know, the bang and then they've got it and so forth, we didn't quite get it yet. So there is a sense of one day, if we tried hard enough, we might also experience that. And I found especially in a retreat when our minds get a little bit more settled, more calm, this, this energy, we experience it quite, quite strongly actually. Sometimes it might just ma manifest in a kind of leaning forward into the next experience, not being able to really settle into whatever the experience is right now. Even if it's a pleasant experience, the habit sometimes is to already lean forward to the next one. Not just being with this breath fully right now, but almost anticipating or expecting the next breath as if the next breath would be any more interesting or bring any other whatever. It might not, not be so rational in our mind why we do that. It's just a habit. Or in the walking meditation, we, we see that often it's not easy to just be with this one step at a time, but that we're already the next and the next and the next, or uh, in, in the metta with the phrases, we rush through the phrases as if that would somehow 
bring us more happiness somewhere down the road or later or when we've done 1000 metaphrases or maybe not quite settling into the sitting practice but expecting already anticipating the walking or the other way around there it will be okay and fine or not being quite present when eating or washing dishes or walking the stairs up and down but waiting for the real thing to be present for or maybe not really kind of allowing yourself to really be here in this retreat but already expecting the next one the longer one then that will be much uh, bring much more success trying to achieve that one experience that we had in the other retreat so when we are lost in desire in this wanting in this clinging in these different shades this wanting mind, mind takes ambition is certainly also to be aware of we can't see clearly we are unfree in this moment the mind is bound there's an anonymous Zen uh, story that I find illustrates that quite well a young boy traveled across Japan to the school of a famous martial artist when he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the teacher. What do you wish from me? the master asked. I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka in the land, the boy replied. How long must I study? Ten years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? Twenty years. The master replied, <laughs> 20 years? What if I practice day and night with all my effort? 30 years was the master's reply. How is it that each time I say I will work harder, you tell me that it will take longer, the boy asked. The answer is clear. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. <laughs> There's also, also an, an Indian saying, a pickpocket, a thief, only sees the pockets of a saint. If we are, or in these moments when we are fixated in our wanting what we want, our mind is very narrow, very limited. We don't have a great picture or perspective of a situation or a, a person or of ourselves. So, of course, it is again mindfulness that recognizes when we are lost in desire, ambition, in clinging. And sometimes we can actually just drop it in this very moment just let it go at other times or at a certain intensity perhaps of the desire 
This, of course, doesn't work, even if we wish to do that. And, of course, already in the first place, it's not just about getting rid of desire and cultivating aversion then, but we need to recognize it, we need to study it, to investigate it. And that this means turning our wholehearted attention towards this energy. And this does not mean, of course, getting lost in it. And here the technique of labeling is often very helpful, just as a way to simply recognize what's happening in our mind. Oh, ambition is like that. Oh, greed. Oh, longing, clinging. How does it manifest in the mind? How does it manifest in the body? And in doing that, we learn to bring our attention from the desired object to desire itself. And this is often difficult because the desired object holds a, a kind of a promise in it. If only I could have this concentrated mind again that I used to have in that retreat, or if only some of this dessert would be left. Again, here we believe that the only way to bring an end to this desire is to fulfill it. And renunciation in this moment seems like an unbearable possibility or maybe a good idea but terribly annoying at this point. Maybe a little bit like uh, St. Augustine said in one of his prayers, Dear God, free me from lust, but not quite yet. <laughs> But imagine the situation you sit in front of a TV <coughs> watching an endless stream of commercials and there is a desire for each object that has been advertised. An enormous suffering compared to the possibility of just letting the objects pass by. We don't get into aversion to the objects, the objects, the advertisement is just what it is. But we just let go of the wanting, the desire. For example, I, what happens often or what I find interesting when I do longer retreats and then I uh, come out and that I'm at home and go shopping again for the first time in one of these big, you know, shopping places. And I always recognize how peaceful the shopping is there, you know. And I, when I became aware of that, I first, well, what's, what's different, you know, from other times I remember when I go shopping. And I realized, oh, there is no wanting in the mind. There is just, you know, I have my list and I get things, what I need or what I'd like to buy and go there and pay and that's it. And it's actually quite peaceful. 
And then over time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time I go, exactly the same situation, the, the wanting creeps in again. You know, there is a kind of, it starts a kind of unrest, you know. It's not just that I just take what I need and I look and I appreciate what they have and, you know, it's nothing is really a problem, but it's, oh, you know, maybe. It's just, it's not, it's not a kind of a rational thing. It's just some unease, some maybe I could have more or it's, although I don't need it, I don't want it, but... <laughs> It's this energy that creeps in again, you know, it's very unpleasant, it's very unpleasant. I just can't help, it just happens again, <laughs> over and over. And it's really through this direct contact with this energy, you know, of our willingness to turn towards this energy really getting to study it, to investigate, to how does it manifest in, in our system, that we also are more and more aware how painful it is in itself. And we also see that as long as we cling, we are blind for other possibilities. We are reduced to this one desired object, be it inwardly the object or in the outer world. And it's also in all these moments where we actually turn there with the attention, with curiosity, with interest, that we, we, really, we really see, you know, when we, when we hold on to the object, how painful it is, how the tightness of it. And then, and that's very important, letting go wouldn't mean we just throw it away. You know, that's just another then it turns into aversion, you know, we think the, the problem is the actual object. The, the letting go would mean just opening the fist, you know, that we've been holding together so tightly, just open it and then we see, oh, we, I'm much more free, you know, I can, I'm more flexible, I can pass the object on, I can put it down, I can take it again there's much more freedom in that moment. And this non-clinging does not mean non-caring. It should not be confused with indifference or with aversion. On the contrary, non-clinging leads to real care. I'm not limited to just seeing the pockets of a saint. If we again use uh, this example, I can see and appreciate him or her as a whole being. And of course, we still might have ideas, opinions about ourselves, about others, but there is space to also recognize other qualities. We are not getting rid of opinions but we can use them to, for example, arrange our life in a meaningful way. We still have our wishes, our hopes, but we don't hold so fast to them. We are willing to connect with the reality of this moment. 
And again, I think a retreat is really a great gift because we can learn so much about this changeable nature of desire of the wanting mind itself, be it sexual desire, desire for food, for meditation experiences, desire for different weather, desire for contact. With this continuous moment-to-moment awareness, we can see that desire doesn't only disappear when it's fulfilled, but that it actually fades by itself. And it's a very, very liberating moment each time that we do see that for ourselves. And this morning, Fred uh, used the example, and I'd actually like to repeat that because I find it's quite interesting. Uh, you know, for example, in the walking meditation, you know, you might be doing your walking, minding your own business, being quite <coughs> in there. You know, there's a sense of being quite present, and all of a sudden you become aware that somebody is doing the walking meditation quite close to your path. Now again, you might just recognize them, just continue with the thing, and then sometimes, who knows why, you know, the mind just hooks to this uh, thought, you know, uh, that somebody is doing the walking meditation, and there is this strong urge needing to know who it is who is walking next to you. Now, if there is awareness and the presence of mind, of course, we are aware of this desire of wanting to look, wanting to know. And we maybe just be aware, oh, wanting to look, desire to look. And we just stay with that with the desire, it might be there for quite some time and there will come a time where it just fades or it might come again, you know, after some time. Now what I also find interesting is when we, the same situation and then we consciously, not just habitually, but consciously decide to look. You know, we say, okay, intention to look and then we look and then it's totally disappointing somehow. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, usually the mind, in my case, just says, it has some, you know, in my case, usually not a very positive comment, you know, depending on your uh, mind setting. But it doesn't bring one any step further to more peace and happiness or, you know, it just says some, oh, okay, it's her, and then we're back with our own mind. And, and I find that so interesting, you know, really, instead of judging or I should not or why, we should just investigate. How is it not to? What happens there? How is it very mindfully if I do it? What happens? What is it actually fulfilling what it promises? You know, it, because it, there is a certain promise. If only I would know who it is and whatever. And usually it doesn't hold the promise. And this, again, if we experience that for ourselves, just helps us to 
to just not do it because it's just not worth. You know, it just brings more restlessness, turmoil, and it's just so more peaceful to stay with ourselves in this moment. And we don't do that out of aversion or because we should, but out of wisdom, of kindness to ourselves. And also, I find very helpful is taking special care in this moment when the desire fades, when we loosen our fist, and really experience that. You know, getting to know that this moment, the lightness, the the ease, the openness again of the mind. And really getting acquainted with this place of freedom that we all have the capacity to experience. So we do not need to justify our desires, nor do we need to fight against them. We learn through our practice to be free in the middle of them. And of course, the habit of clinging is very strong, so we need a lot of persistence, of interest, and a lot of patience to study it and and understand its nature. So I'd also look uh, a little bit at the opposite energy, the not wanting or wanting to get rid of or dislikes all forms of aversion. Equally powerful energy as greed, equally painful for us, for others, when we are lost in this energy. And I think many things that I've mentioned about Greed are valid for this energy too. In the midst of aversion, our view here too is totally limited, narrowed down. We are fixated on what we want to get rid of. And that's actually almost funny if we become aware of that. We try to get rid of something and this very trying to get rid of something makes us really stay connected with this object or person or situation or inner mind state. Um, Aversion manifests as greed does in a wide range, of course, of manifestations. There is this deep hatred, anger, there might be just a sense of discontent, of disgust, of cynicism, of sarcasm, of shutting down, boredom, dislike, restlessness, fear. And habitually we either try to pretend it's not really happening or perhaps we feel guilty, we try to avoid it, hide it, hold the breath or we act on it, we let it out in words, in actions, in deeds. And all of those ways are not very skillful. When we are in a state of anger, of aversion, it's painful 
first of all for ourselves, most times also of course for others, because we feel disconnected and our perception is very narrow and very limited. And we all know that when we are in an aversive mood, no matter what happens, we might be with kind friends, good company, in a beautiful place, we can't enjoy it. We are fixated <coughs> on that one thing that we don't like. Now, when we, again, as with the desire, when we take interest, when we uh, turn towards this energy, we sometimes discover that the root of anger often lies in an unpleasant state or condition that we have experienced before the anger. For example, we might get angry when we got hurt, when we are afraid or when we are disappointed. Now, instead of feeling the fear or the hurt or the disappointment and maybe even communicate it, we react with aversion. So with mindfulness again, we learn to recognize aversion. We learn to recognize it faster and also the more subtle forms of it. Sometimes, again, here too, we can just drop it. At the moment we recognize, we just let it go. It's just a habit to react with aversion. And we remember and we just let it go. And if it stays, we learn not to make more out of it. We simply let ourselves feel the anger in the body. We get away from the story, we connect with the actual sensation and if we are willing to just stay with the unpleasant sensations, we also experience the natural cessation of this aversion as it is with wanting. So when we let the aversion be, which doesn't mean getting lost in this energy, but we just let it be, when we don't feed it with more thoughts, it has no energy to stay. It's just not its nature to stay for eternity. There's a, um, a passage that Jack Cornfield, one of the uh, well-known Vipassana teachers who also uh, teaches here in our center sometimes, and he describes uh, a situation when he was still a monk in Thailand traveling with his teacher, Achan Cha, and he describes here uh, one of those moments when this acceptance or how the acceptance can be very healing. In this uh, example, it's the acceptance of fear. He writes, 
When I was a young monk, I traveled with my teacher Ajahn Chah to a branch monastery on the Cambodian border, 80 miles away from our main temple. We were offered a ride in a rickety old Toyota with doors that didn't close fully. Our village driver was really speeding that day, recklessly passing water buffalo, buses, bicycles and cars alike around blind curves on a mountainous dirt road. All of you have been in India or any other Asian country, you might probably uh, recognize that situation. At this continued, as this continued, I felt sure I would die that day. So for the whole time, I gripped the seat back and silently prepared myself. <laughs> I followed my breath and recited my monk's prayers. At one point, I looked over and saw my teacher's hands were also white from gripping the seat. <laughs> this reassured me somehow, even though I also believed him to be quite unafraid of dying. When we finally arrived safely, he laughed and said simply, Scary, wasn't it? <laughs> In that moment, he named the demon and helped me make friends with it. Just maybe some other forms of aversion that we might sometimes not put into uh, this energy. One is boredom. Of course, in our daily life, it's much easier to avoid boredom, especially in our, uh, the times today in our society. We've got refrigerators, phones, TVs, radios, books, hobbies, music, and many other things that we can distract ourselves when it gets a moment of boredom. And of course, here on a retreat, we have many of those distractions fall away and we are bound, perhaps, to experience moments of boredom. And I think it's very interesting, again, you know, instead of fighting it or trying to look for distraction, when it's actually happening, you know, really turning towards boredom. How is boredom? What is boredom? And I found for myself that often it's a kind of a, a, a mixture, it's a kind of lack of attentiveness, often colored with aversion or with desire. Maybe desire for more intensity, for more depth, or not wanting to be with the trivial. There's a sense of judging, you know, this now, this experience, that's just trivial. I want to, the spiritual, the, you know, the, the real thing. So really taking the time and turn towards and see what, what's actually happening, you know, what's going on there. Of course, a very widespread form of aversion or of great suffering is that of the judging mind. Judging ourselves, our meditation, judging others. 
And judging too is not something we can get rid of simply by willpower. From now on I will not judge myself anymore. (laughs) So judging the judging is just more of the same we discover. Just makes it worse. But we can learn to recognize it and not build a whole story around the charging in that moment that is already happening. We learn to just let those charging words pass by and fade by themselves. It's really just words in the mind if we look very closely. Ram Das, he said, don't take yourself so personally. <laughs> can be helpful to remind ourselves sometimes not to take our thoughts, our judge so personally. It just says, it's just habit. So we learn to deal with it in a skillful, in a non-harming way. We learn to see its transparent nature so that we minimize the harm until this unwholesome energy has no more ground to manifest. So desire and aversion together with delusion, with not seeing clearly, they are the three root causes for the suffering. All three obscure reality and when we are lost in them they manifest as unwholesome thoughts, words, actions and so forth. And in our meditation practice we learn to open to all the manifestations. Our capacity to love, to feel empathy, to rejoice in the good our capacity for inner calm, for equanimity and compassion. But of course, we also open to the hatred, the ill will, the pride, the fears, our tendency to cling, to grasp, the doubts, the uncertainty, the laziness, the chaos at times. And sometimes it takes great courage to see how our self-image clashes with reality. And we need a lot of compassion, of patience, of perseverance when we meet our greedy, our sad, our egoistic, self-centered, our aversive mind. But we also have the capacity within us not to grasp all these manifestations, just to let them arise let them be, let them fade away. Just become very, very transparent. We do not need to declare them as my anger, my desire, and thus solidifying them. We have the capacity to slowly put aside our our armor of these old habits. And instead of being lonely in our tight, rigid, limited and stuffy, airtight armor, we have the capacity to be more and more at home in expansiveness and openness. And 
generosity, kindness, compassion, tolerance and flexibility will more and more be the natural expressions of our heart and of our mind. I'd like to end with a text by the Chan Master Sheng Yen. I've been uh, talking or mentioning him last week. The mind that makes no distinctions is unmoving. There are no ups and downs. If you tried to eliminate the ups and downs, it would be like trying to calm the ripples on water in a pan. You want the surface to be completely still. You blow on the water to flatten it out and end up making more ripples. Then you press the water with your hands to stop it from moving, which creates even more agitation. If you were to leave the water alone, the ripples would eventually subside and the surface would be still. Just a few moments of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.